Good morning and welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. It has been a very good minute since I've done a podcast. And actually, <clears throat> I had released this podcast the other day, but then I was listening it over, checking it out, and I realized that I had um, somehow recorded the rough draft of this podcast on top of the finalized version. So it was like repeating itself in a really funny circular way so i had to go back and edit it and then in the process of editing it of course uh murphy's law something else happened with the audio and it got really wonky for a couple hours i had to do a lot of piecing together of things there's like a few spots in this recording the audio is a little off forgive me it's just the way it is at the same time as i like to tell people with these podcasts i really prefer not to edit a lot of things i really prefer to keep it as it is it's just like a snapshot portrait into the present moment into my mind and what's happening at that time and trying to polish and perfect everything i prefer much rather like the punk rock kind of approach where everything's a little messy and we embrace the fact that it's messy and it's not sanitized it's not corporatized i'm i'm quite a fan of that and so uh yeah yeah there's some spots that are messy you know just embrace it it's part of the part of the magic of of you know raw recordings being broadcasted out to the world anyways i hope you enjoy the podcast i've been doing a lot of traveling <clears throat> and it's been very very busy with all of the facets of communal reality and so on and so forth and many different things so it's a very interesting time and that being said it's always been a very interesting time there's never been a boring moment in human existence people like to say this is you know thrilling exciting times but reality is it's always been like that the present moment regardless of where or when you are is always the most excellent and interesting and fascinating place and time to be and obviously though externally speaking there's some pretty unique interesting things happening in the world and a lot of chaos is happening, or at least it's so it appears. It appears to be a lot of chaos if you read the news and so on. Whether or not that's actually the case is debatable because I've heard some people say that there's actually been more peace at this point in time than ever before. And so that discrepancy right there between perhaps what you see on the news and what might actually be happening in reality is on some level more or less the focal point of this podcast which in essence could be summed up as focus um and before we kind of get into all that what inspired this podcast was the work of sebastião salgado who is a brazilian photographer still around and he did this really excellent book that I came across called Amazonia. Uh, photography, right? It's pretty much all photos. I wish there was more text. Uh, I would have loved to have read more about some of the backstory of what I was looking at. And it's a massive coffee table book. It goes for about like 120 bucks or something like that on Amazon. Uh, I came across it and just depicting a lot of the uncontacted or uh you could say maybe rare i don't know if rare is the right word but uncontacted and remote that's a better word than rare remote tribes of the brazilian amazon um specifically you know a couple like the yawanawa and the zoe tribes 
and uh, Hunikuin tribes, and just really fascinating, like a whole, you know, hundreds of different tribes that never heard of before, you know, totally remote living in fairly pristine conditions in the Brazilian Amazon, pretty um, close to nature as one could possibly get, and beautiful epic photographs and if you haven't heard of Sebastio Salgado you should check him out because his work is very famous and very well known and there was a documentary done about him that I watched recently and the documentary is called Salt of the Earth and before I even get into anything about the documentary just going into the title I was researching Salt of the Earth and what I came across was that this is a very famous phrase in the Bible and it's interesting because salgado in Portuguese means salty. So perhaps this is where the filmmakers got some of the title from. Uh, and one of the co-directors of the film is actually Salgado's son. So very possible speculation, though. Um, so salt of the earth from the Bible. I'm going to read a little bit here uh, from <laughs> it's a Christian website, just kind of giving a... Um, interpretation of Christ's teachings on salt of the earth. You know, never would I have thought that later in my life I would be sitting in a small little cabin in the middle of the forest in the mountains alone reading through a <laughs> radio stream to the to the public Bible passages. Can't say I saw that coming. Nonetheless, here we are. So, in three of the four gospel accounts, Jesus connects his disciples to salt. In Matthew 5.13, he tells them explicitly, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In Mark 9.50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. In Luke 14.34-35, he shared a similar thought. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt has been used as fertilizer in small amounts and for flavor, so the idea being put forth here is that salt is to promote good things, as Christ's disciples are to promote divinity and positivity and so on. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So just some interpretation. Without salt, food can become tasteless, and without salt, food can quickly rot. If Christians, or you could say spiritual folk, I don't think it needs to be exactly Christians, right? Are the salt of the world, then the job of said people is to make the world more palatable to God while being a force against corruption and decay. When we use God's perfect law as the standard for how we live our lives, we accomplish both of those things. In this respect, salt is a metaphor for the peace, graciousness, and wisdom that allows us to interact with others in a godly way. So, how does this tie into the 
work of Sebastio Salgado. This idea of we are on earth to be of service, to we are to create positivity, to be transformative agents for light. And the story put forth in Salt of the Earth, which is a documentary on Salgado's life and work, is extraordinarily profound and deeply, deeply moving and <clears throat> does not require any connection to anything spiritual for that to be felt. So a little bit of backstory, which they cover in the documentary. And Salgado, uh, he grows up in Brazil on a very lush farm um, and very beautiful place, has tropical kind of vibe. He winds up leaving the country of Brazil in the 70s because of the military dictatorship, exiles him, and he flees to France where he picks up photography. During this time in exile, his family farm eventually turns into a complete dust bowl. Virtually all the vegetation dies. It's a completely wasteland, lifeless, uh, sad place. Like the documentary, while they're depicting Salgado and his raising of a family as two kids, one of his kids winds up having Down syndrome, which is just an interesting thing to reflect upon about. I was thinking to myself, you know, I have one child and I can't imagine having two kids, which... I can imagine it, but I'm just saying that, like, one is, there's plenty of work that goes into having one, so it's like, okay, two, that's a whole other level, that's doubling the workload. But then having a second child, one who has Down syndrome, and managing to travel to something like 130 countries, and, you know, living the life of your dreams as a as a uh, photojournalist, and documenting, and going on all kinds of crazy adventures and stuff, just kind of shows you how we limit ourselves and I wasn't actually planning on talking about this, but spontaneity is the best medicine, so I'm going into it, which is when I was deciding, my wife and I, to have children, I'm going to bring her on the podcast to interview her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was this sense of like, oh, are we going to be blocking ourselves creatively because now we have to take care of a child? And legitimate fear, right? If anyone has any kind of artistic yearning, so to speak. And what we have found is that quite the contrary that having a child activates you organizes you motivates you inspires you makes you think outside of the box and gets your uh your butt moving in a good direction and when you do have a space and time to do something creative as i have at this very small window right now to do this podcast you seize the opportunity because hey if you don't do it now it's just not going to happen so it's a really powerful uh, energy for getting things done. And I thought this was cool because, you know, to have two kids, not just one, and have one that has Down syndrome and still be able to do something as transformative and globally uh, expressive as Salgado, pretty amazing. So his desire to become a photographer, uh, it plays into his philosophy of social responsibility um, he has a strong connection to humanity and my uncle is actually a photographer and I've heard him talk about this he's traveled through Bangladesh and India and Pakistan and Peru and some other really cool places and how the camera becomes a tool for for bridging the gap between yourself and the local population in a very humanizing way not necessarily in a objectifying way but it connects you in authentically to people so not in a tourist sense 
but you get the people's story when you get their photo or vice versa you get their story then they're open to giving you the photo and it can uh, provide dignity and empowerment and a voice to people that ordinarily uh, might not have one and this is sort of Salgado's philosophy and he covers pretty intense stuff he covers war starvation genocide um, South in South America but also a lot in Africa and also in Europe and at one point he is actually covering the genocide occurring in Europe and Bosnia and then the same year he goes over to cover the genocide in Rwanda in Africa in the 90s and this is a pretty intense moment for him within his life path of just attempting to do something very positive you know bringing the world's focus and awareness into devastating destructive horrifying catastrophes moral ethical social political failures and the toll that it starts to take on him before going to that uh there i found some quotes from eduardo galliano who wrote a really excellent book that i read something like eight years ago when i traveled through south america for the first time called open veins of latin america which is a book about more or less the horrors and repercussions of european colonialism and imperialism in south america excellent book highly recommend it very good to understand what that continent has been through since essentially the landing of columbus and it's important to understand things like colonialism and imperialism because it continues to exist to this day and a lot of what uh, we see in many ways is a byproduct of that colonialism being sustained have a lot of respect and appreciation for eduardo galliano he was from uruguay and he was exiled during the dictatorships that took hold there and before i even get into a couple quotes that he offered about salgado i just want to read a couple other ones of his because they're good i don't believe in charity i believe in solidarity charity is so vertical it goes from the top to the bottom solidarity is horizontal it respects the other person i have a lot to learn from other people the church says the body is a sin science says the body is a machine advertising says the body is a business the body says i am a fiesta <laughs> i like that one a lot uh, and then each person shines with his or her own light no two flames are alike there are big flames and little flames flames of every color some people's flames are so still they don't even flicker in the wind while others have wild flames that fill the air with sparks some foolish flames neither burn nor shed light but others blaze with life so fiercely that you can't look at them without blinking and if you approach you shine in the fire And there's one other here. In 1492, the natives discovered they were Indians, discovered they were lived in America, discovered they were naked, discovered that the sin existed, discovered they owed allegiance to a king and kingdom from another world and a god from another sky, and that this god had invented the guilty and the dress and had sent to be burnt alive who worships the sun, the moon, the earth, and the rain that wets it. We read one more by him because these are great quotes. When it is genuine, when it is born of the need to speak, no one can stop the human voice. When denied a mouth, it speaks with the hands or the eyes or the pores or anything at all. 
because every single one of us has something to say to others, something that deserves to be celebrated or forgiven by others. The big bankers of the world who practice the terrorism of money are more powerful than kings and field marshals, even more than the Pope of Rome himself. They never dirty their hands. They kill no one. They limit themselves to applauding the show. And read this last one here. Some prisoners spent more than 10 years buried in solitary cells the size of coffins, hearing nothing but clanging bars or footsteps in the corridors. They survived because they could talk to each other by tapping on the wall. In that way, they told of dreams and memories, fallings in and out of love. They discussed, embraced, fought. They shared beliefs and beauties, doubts and guilts, and those questions that have no answers. And this is where he picks up with the quote I read a moment ago. When it is genuine, when it is born of the need to speak, no one can stop the human voice. There's a couple questions poised to him about Salgado's work. And so I'll read the question and his response. So, which of your emotions and senses come alive in the opening sequence of Salgado's photographs of the gold miners? And he's referring to the Serra Palado gold miners in Brazil, which Salgado photographed in 1986, documented in the the film, and it, it's quite insane. It looks like something from a horror movie almost because you have uh, thousands of workers in this giant hole, mud hole, um, hundreds of feet deep, carrying heavy sacks of dirt up to 120 pounds up these massive, massive ladders. Um, it's just like... It's hard to fully explain it. it. People just on top of one another in this mud bowl, digging out the earth and bringing the earth out. And they're being paid only 60 cents uh, for each trip of this 120-pound sacks brought up the ladder. It looks kind of like how you would imagine the pyramids would have been built or something like that if you actually believed in the narrative about slaves or something building the pyramids however these people are not slaves according to the documentary they look like slaves but they're actually there uh trying to strike it rich finding gold and they're just in this pit of like disease violence and danger and they're quite shocking the photographs and eduardo galliano's response in the photographs are these photographs these figures of tragic grandeur carvings in stone or wood by a sculptor in despair was the sculptor the photographer, or God, or the devil, or earthly reality? This much is certain. It would be difficult to look at these figures and remain unaffected. I cannot imagine anyone shrugging his shoulder, turning away, and sauntering off whistling. So that right there, I think, is a good summation of Salgado's work as a whole, is that no one could look at his photos and just shrug your shoulder, and turn away, and go off whistling. Uh, the impact that they have is quite profound, regardless of where he is or what he's photographing, because he also uh, later in his career does things related to just natural landscapes and animals, and all of it is just like shockingly and strikingly beautiful and impactful. And Eduardo Galliano says, Salgado's photographs, a multiple portrait of human pain, and at the same time invites us to celebrate the dignity of humankind. Brutally frank, these images of hunger and suffering are yet respectful and seemly. Having no relation to the tourism of poverty, they do not violate but penetrate the human spirit in order to reveal it. Salgado shows some, sometimes shows skeletons, almost corpses, with dignity, although all that is left to them. They have been stripped of everything, but they have dignity. 
That is the source of their ineffable beauty. That is not a macabre, obscene exhibitionism of poverty. It is a poetry of horror because there is a sense of honor. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking specifically about the work Salgado does with uh, the genocide that occurred in Sudan and Ethiopia, where you have these you know, thousands and thousands of people just fleeing uh, war and oppression, and they're just wandering through the desert and just collapsing out of a lack of food and water. At the same time, as, as Galliano reflects, there's something, the dignity and the power of the people and their spirit as they're going through this incredibly, insanely horrific trying experience comes forth in the imagery. So after he went to Bosnia and then came to Rwanda and uh, the level of violence there, you know, tens of thousands of people murdered, uh, he was left physically and emotionally drained, to say the least. He says, I was sick. I was not well. I had lost faith in our species. Uh, his immune system, compromised by stress, gave way, and he came down with a series of infections. An abscess had to be drained. His doctor, alarmed by what he saw, told Salgado that his body was dying and urged him to take a break. Heeding the advice, Salgado, accompanied by his wife, spent three months recuperating in a small village in Brazil. And he points out in the documentary that like, the level of depravity and violence and catastrophe is not something that was limited to one continent or one culture, one people, one race, one ethnicity, one religion. It's in South America. It's in Europe. It's in... Uh, Africa and of course too right you know you have like the same situations happening with Aboriginal people in Australia of course with the Tibetan people in Asia and many other places Cambodia right and then you know of course the Native American population in North America and the ripple rippling effect repercussive effect of those policies state-sponsored violence and so on these things existing everywhere of course the Middle East uh, so this is something he says, I lost faith in, faith in our species, right? This is not just one place, one people that's the problem. This is something that's in the collective psyche that is a fundamental problem expressing itself through the clashing of different groups of people. So during this period, Salgado had time to reflect on what he witnessed. He remembers feeling despair and his dreams were troubled, but there was no abiding symptoms of PTSD. Rather, what he experienced was a pervasive sense of sadness coupled with the conviction that mankind, humankind, had lost its way. With his health improved, Salgado began a new project that broke with photography. He returned with his wife and family to his parents' farm in Brazil, which he had inherited, a land that during his childhood had been burdened and lush, but which over the years had been destroyed by devastation, deforestation, and drought. Salgado's philosophy in life has much in common biocentrism, an ethical belief that asserts the non-human value in nature. To him, the destruction of human life that he had witnessed never more brutal than in the Rwanda or, or Congo, but in other insidious ways no less cruel elsewhere, was mirrored by violence inflicted on the land and the ruination of the environment. But whereas his photogra uh, photography could not reverse the tide of human misery, when it came to land... That had, to use his description, been completely violated, there was the agency where he could take action. He could do something about the land, where there was a sense of powerlessness, perhaps, about 
um, the political upheaval and violence between human beings, there's something that could be done, a sense of agency about restoration towards the earth itself. So his wife, Leela, suggests they replant the rainforest, uh, specifically on the farm where he grew up. And in the film, they kind of talk about this, like this is where you came out of the earth. This is the place where you uh, came into existence and importance of taking care of that area and being a steward of that area and being in service to that area. So his wife, Leela, uh, as we said, suggested they replant the rainforest in that area. So they decided to plant um, two million trees, which they did over the course of 20 years. And this pretty insane work, right, to be able to plant two million trees. And it's kind of funny because I realized after the documentary that I had seen a meme about Salgado, seen a Facebook meme about Salgado, where they're saying, oh, you know, photographer, wildlife photographer, uh, reforest a, you know, distraught part of earth in Brazil over the course of 20 years, plants 2 million trees. And I remember looking at it and being like, this, this is real, this seems kind of fake because they show the before and after, it's like totally barren. And then it becomes this like epic, lush, beautiful rainforest, jungle situation with all kinds of wildlife and such. And... I was like, there's no way this is real. But then once we finished the documentary and, you know, they're showing footage of all the work that they've done over the 20 years, I was like, oh, this is real. This is what they were talking about. This is about Salgado. I was like, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> and um, right there is such a powerful exemplification of be the change you wish to see in the world. So... They wind up uh, forming a ecological institute there called Instituto Terra, and they make the land a national park. And they their ecological institution is dedicated to promoting the restoration and conservation of forest land. And it's just quite incredible the footage of what they show. They did what they're able to do with the land because prior to the um, the reforestation efforts, they have footage. Uh, of the farm when it was in its wasteland zone. And it's quite astonishing to look at that and think, oh, you can resurrect that. You can rebuild that and, you know, rebirth that situation. I think the majority of people would look at that and say, well, there's nothing good there. It's all over. You know, throw in the towel for that situation. Time to move on. Uh, and then seeing the potential and the capabilities of reforming and transforming, you realize that, things are possible that perhaps you have never conceived of before. And during this time when he's doing the healing work on himself, he goes into the Brazilian Amazon and this is where he takes the photographs for the book Amazonia, contacting, you know, the Yawanawa tribe and the Zoe tribe and the Yanomami Hunikun. And uh, there's some cool little anecdotes there when he's with one of the tribes, which are uncontacted essentially and there are ordinances in place by the brazilian government where you can't interfere with them on any level you can't impact or change their culture because there's a effort to preserve their way of life and not just send them the way of devastation and industrialization which i suppose can happen just through minor interferences so he's with them and uh the anecdote some guy says uh sebastio give me your knife when you go 
And he replies, I'm sorry, I cannot give it to you because I cannot corrupt your culture. It's forbidden by the government. And he says, oh, no, it's okay. Because your knife is so important. When you're ready, <laughs> when you're up in that small plane above the forest, just throw your knife out. I know this forest like the lines of my hand. I can find your knife anywhere inside the forest. <laughs> and right there, it just kind of exemplifies like the power of some of these indigenous cultures where, you know, on some level, he's probably just being playful and joking. But on another level, the way that they convey it through the film is he was being quite serious. Uh, the power and the wisdom and the depth of knowledge that these Amazonian tribes have through their connection with nature, uh, not in spite of it. You know, what I mean by that is you look at our culture, you could say that a lot of the knowledge of this culture, arguably, has been uh, an attempt to get away from nature, right? A lot of the technologies we've created has been a way for us to invent artificial environments to block out the natural world. While in the case of, you know, the Yanomami of the Zoe tribe, they uh, their knowledge and wisdom comes from immersing themselves fully in the environment and being in harmony with it and it's quite profound their level of consciousness and their level of connection to the earth and their capacity to exist within it in a very profound and empowered way of a lot of balance but there's a really epic documentary about the yanomami on netflix called the last forest really epic film uh, my understanding is the chief of the Yanomami was integral in the creation of the film, and it's a documentary that's not like a normal one. It's almost like a story. It shows how they're being impacted by gold miners coming into the area and the violence that is coming to their tribe. And then it also kind of breaks into like storytelling and has uh, actual Yanomami native people depicting traditional mythology of the culture and it's really cool the way that they do it's really well shot really well filmed there's no like interview kind of style it's as if you're just living with the tribe and it's pretty incredible just to watch how these people live they have a like one giant hut that's basically like a u-shape and they all just are together in this massive long u-shaped hut that faces out into the forest and uh they work with Yopo, which is like a powdered 5-MeO-DMT smut that they blow up the nose, similar to what we were talking about with the Hoppe, but entirely different because it's a psychedelic property. And uh, quite strong from what I understand. It's pretty intense. They use like this three-foot pipe and they just blow it like crazy. I have a, saw a photo of a guy who looks like he's getting his head blown off by it <laughs> down in the, in the jungle. Uh, and once again, like, for these cultures this is a, a conscious expanding medicine that allows them to understand uh, how to relate to one another how to relate to nature how to be in tune with the cosmos how to be in tune with their own energetic and emotional systems and how to keep balance and strength in a very trying and intense environment in the jungle and the film ends they they do this huge yopo ceremony all the men of the tribe to figure out how to deal with what's happening with the gold miners and then the next scene uh, is basically the chief of the tribes at Harvard University, which is real footage, and he's giving a speech trying to explain to the culture here in the United States uh, what's happening and, and why you know you can't devastate the forest and you can't uh, you have to respect nature. And there's there like I said, there's a lot more with with uh, that we could talk about with these tribes. It would require podcast after podcast to really 
capture the depth of them, but just, you know, if you want to check out more fantastic documentary called The Last Forest, really powerful. And I, I like the the juxtaposition of those two scenes where they have the Yopo ceremony because it looks just totally crazy. And, you know, if you're not uh, exposed to anything of similar nature to that, you could think, like, it's a little... Um, you I don't know, you could pass a lot of judgment about it. But then you realize, like, here is this elder coming now to speak at Harvard University, you know, preaching a message of, of ecological awareness and conservation and social responsibility. And so it makes you uh, just question uh, which culture uh, has their shit together, so to speak. <laughs> is it the culture that is tapped into industrialization and raping the environment or is it the culture that is using the wisdom of plants to access higher states of consciousness so that they can essentially regulate and control themselves to be in harmony with nature and not allow the egoic mind to get out of control uh, things to think about my guess is most people listening to this podcast this is all kind of old news on a lot of level but nonetheless, uh, something to think about, right? I saw a meme that said something like, this is civilized, and it showed um, a culture, just total wasteland of garbage and pollution and industry and everything toxic that comes out of a mechanistic, capitalist, industrialist society. Then it said, this is savage, and it shows a bunch of native people uh, with little clothing on, living in a pristine, clean, natural environment uh, in harmony with one another. So it's important to question these beliefs and where they came from. And so I think this book by uh, Salgado Amazonia is, is a wonderful opportunity for people to get a glimpse of insight into cultures that have not lost their connection with nature to help people question uh, you know, what is our personal relationship to nature? How are we treating nature? Because it is becoming a global catastrophic situation. And without that reflective self-awareness, it's only going to keep going in that direction. There's a really nice quote here that I thought was worth sharing. When we learned about Sebastião and Lila Salgado's reforestation project, we recall the advice of the Sumi, Sufi mystic poet Rumi. Rumi says, start a huge foolish project like Noah. It makes absolutely no difference what people think of you. And then the person who found this quote says, sometimes we hold back because we think that our hopeful enthusiasm will seem out of place in our cynical and downbeat world. Resist that attitude. Initiate a bold project that will benefit others and give the next generation reason to hope. So, you know, of course, what is the teaching here is be the change you wish to see in the world. And it's the documentary is excellent with the cinematography and the music and the interviews and the imagery of the photographs used and the camera footage they have from specific experiences during his time in Africa and South America and so on. And the moment where he gets to that really dark place in the 90s dealing with both the Bosnian genocide and Rwanda is like this moment where you feel as a viewer such a crushing sense of despair of like what's wrong with the world and what can you do about it and it's very heavy because you're seeing images of the experience and he's telling stories about the images and the people who he's with and how 
you know, he's like fleeing from Sudan and, and like a helicopter comes down and all these refugees were starving and just women and children start shooting at them. He shot as well. And, you know, he's one of the survivors, but many people are not. And just going into things like that and just the intensity and, and the moments of human connection and experience that occur during these like horrific times. And uh, you feel that sense of despair and the film does a good job of conveying it. But then in a very beautiful way, like the light or rather the night is uh, darkest before the dawn type situation, the depiction and the beautiful revolution of restoring the earth and connecting to the indigenous tribes and bringing a lot of healing to the earth and watching how that can ripple out and inspire and influence millions of people in a very positive direction. It's just an incredible, moving teaching to be understood about how to live one's life. And I thought it was really interesting because about a week after I watched this documentary, I think it was about a week, that whole situation, um, I think it was like October 7th happened with uh, Israel and Hamas and all that. And just a a perfect... uh, moment to think about okay like where is your agency in human catastrophe and in war and in conflict and violence because what salgado's life and the documentary is showing is that yeah like focusing on it and being a witness to horror and terror it's on some level important i mean of course it is because if we turn our backs or put our heads in the sand that is a deeply disempowering and enabling act right it's it's not just it's not just uh not getting involved in things it's also not doing anything that allows things to continue and you know mother Teresa said when someone asked her like what can you do to promote peace in the world she said go home and love your children uh this is this same premise of like think globally and act locally and there are things that are just far beyond anyone's uh control and you know arguably you could say that life is just outside of our control but at the same time it's a co-created participatory experience and we have agency to inspire invoke and change things in certain regards and if we spend our time focusing on war conflict misery violence death deceit and destruction colonialism and so on uh, we can find ourselves in a very difficult and miserable and dark place. And so our teacher, Maestro Manuel, has been kind of sharing with our community about the situation, as we have a number of people in our community, which is in many ways like a big family, who are Jewish and also have family in Israel. Uh, we as a community actually visited there in 2016, and we also went to Bethlehem, which I'm quite certain is in Palestine. We definitely went over into the occupied territories a little bit here and there. Most of the time you're in Israel. And we also have a lot of uh, Orthodox Jewish people and uh, people who are still connected, even if it's not Orthodox or Hasidic, to their Jewish faith that come with our community. Uh, And so we have like that connection but you know at the same time not to focus on violence and conflict 
and this idea like that yeah there's a there are discrepancies and moral failures and violence on both sides and the issue isn't that one side is right and one side is wrong but rather that whoever is on the side of violence is in a wrong essentially and of course right like as i say that too it's important to understand like where terrorism comes from if you have a chance to watch charlie wilson's war about america's involvement in afghanistan when the soviets and the afghans are going to war and how the united states decides to fund the taliban and train them <laughs> and give them weapons uh, to fight the Soviets, and then afterwards they completely abandon helping uh, any cultural, educational, health-oriented projects for the Afghanis. And so basically what happens is you have a highly militarized, um, fundamentalist, radical Taliban culture with no educational funding and so on and so forth come in, and, and they... Uh, just take over the situation once the Soviets leave completely and you know lo and behold what happens right um, and this idea right that like terrorism is something that is created through terror if you terrorize a group of people you should not be surprised when they enact terror back upon you uh, simple cause and effect and you know Malcolm X was intensely criticized for saying in response to the violence in the United States um, he said you know this is an example of when the chickens come home to roost this is what's happening uh, here in the United States because of America's involvement in Vietnam you export violence abroad do not be surprised when violence comes back home in your back door and uh, you know there's been some people who said the same thing the September 11th where it's basically like you know if you want to say they hate us for our freedoms that's a great talking point that's a good way to create like a very black and white dichotomy us and them there's good guys and there's bad guys okay alright let's go get the bad guys you know that's that's a cool like cowboy type language that's good for a Hollywood movie but it doesn't really explain the reality of the situation in a few minutes of you know research you can discover like oh these people are have been uh, totally brutalized and oppressed and uh, desecrated for decades and, and they're tired of it and um, this is a, a retaliation for terror that's been exported to them um, and so I think you know the same thing needs to be said about too like with, within the Palestinian situation it's like you occupy people and, and you kill them and you oppress them and you restrict how many <laughs> calories they're getting per day like you calculate that intentionally so you can control the amount of food that's going in there and uh you know have an apartheid state and state-sponsored violence and like yeah that's what's going to happen terrorism because you know you export terrorism terrorism comes back what is the solution we know what the problem is the problem is violence it's really obvious and you know the solution is like that there people need to learn how to forgive one another that people need to learn how to live and work together with one another and that's a, a solution that if you're living there, you have to figure out how to deal with that. But most of us are not living there. Most of us are living in our own uh, Israel-Palestine situation within our own heart at times, in within our own interactions with other people. We need to look at this situation and use it as a metaphor for saying, okay, 
I need to learn to become more peaceful. I need to release myself from the need to take vengeance upon another person. Uh, you know, what kind of a counterterrorism strategy is bombing a hospital full of children and um, innocent people? In the same sense, what kind of uh, counter violence situation is screaming at people and throwing things and trying to do things in spite of other people? So just looking at this situation, it's like, yeah, there is a reality to it. We're not denying the reality. But at the same time, like, what is it telling us to do? It's telling us we need to confront the violent aspects of ourselves and that we need to take ownership for our misgrievings and wrongdoings and understand where can peace and where can forgiveness and burying the hatchet, where can those values and practices come into play in our own personal life and what are the methodologies for implementing them uh, and also understanding right the problem is not other people I think that that phrase in a lot of ways sums up what we're trying to get at is that the problem is not other people yes other people will do things other people will take retribution and promote violence but in a closed circuit loop, if you get yourself out of it, the loop will also fall apart or be forced to change on some level. And the more that we can extricate ourselves from the cycles of abuse and violence, both within and without, in terms of our inner and outer behavior, the more that we can uh, promote peace in the world and that we can be more of a beacon for light and healing and the intensity of anger that one might feel and rawness of emotion and i say this because like in my own sense i i this specific situation with israel and palestine is like it just provokes potentially raw, but uh pretty raw emotions for a lot of people there's just something about the nature of it you know, I was listening to uh, someone describe the conflict and saying, like, this is an example of colonialism that, uh, you know, 100 years ago, no one would care about because it was kind of the way that things were done. Colonialism was a part of the global landscape. It's how countries interacted with each other 100 years ago. It was just part of how things were. But you're talking about, and maybe it's more like 150 years ago, 200 years ago, but not that long ago. But it's something that's like, this idea of occupying a territory and a people and controlling resources that go in there and subjugating them to terror and violence and then dealing with their uprisings, like that's something that happened a lot. And it was just like, yeah, that's what's happening in the world. But the rest of the world in a lot of ways, according to this uh, researcher was saying like it's kind of been outdated it's not something that's really acceptable anymore but this situation here has not been resolved and so it's particularly a fiery debate because one you have the people who were expelled from Europe after dealing with racism and genocide and anti-semitism and so on and now you have this like bizarrely crazy ironic situation where like that culture is now inflicting it on another culture and perhaps on some level it's not really like that crazy or ironic because this is what we're talking about with the cycle of violence and abuse where it's like things get passed down the line just like 
when you look at a child that's been abused, it's they are victim to a certain extent. But then later in life, how often, more often than not, does that child then inflict the same level of violence upon other people in their family or themselves or others that they care about? And so just understanding, right, like this is all coming down to cycles of violence and as above, so below. We're trying to understand more importantly from the perspective of someone like Sebastio Salgado, like we're aware of this, but we're going to shift our focus to where we have agency and where we can promote change and justice and peace. And it's not in reading news articles and posting things on the internet. Um, and it's definitely not about uh, getting flared up about like one side doing this or that, because uh, of course, like what would you do if you were in charge of a country and, you have a militant organization that comes in and murders, you know, 1,200 people. You have to do something, right? That's the position that that person has found themselves in. All these things are pretty intense and in certain ways, like, confusing, you could say, on one level. But ultimately, like, the answer can be simple, which is, like, there needs to be a peaceful solution and an integrative solution. Uh, a friend of mine who lives in Israel, who is, is Israeli, uh, went to school with my mom in New York City uh, and spent some time with her in Tel Aviv. And remember one of her uncles was there and he was sharing with me like that when he fled with his family when he was very young, he still remembers fleeing Iraq from Saddam Hussein. Uh, and they escaped on horseback and they were getting shot at and stuff like that. So you can understand like the intensity of the the Jewish situation and trying to find a homeland and trying to find peace and trying to find a place of being safe and so on um, but I was talking with uh, my mom's friend and she was saying like you know everyone's talking about got to give these uh, the Jewish people their state back or it belongs to Israel it belongs to Palestine she's like no one's talking about this idea of like a one-state solution of just integrating the cultures together but no one wants to do that in the Israeli government because there's something along the lines of like 7 million Jews, I think, in Israel from my quick Google search what it said. And there are around, I think, 15 million Muslims in Palestine. Uh, and there's even another 2 million in Israel. And so what you all of a sudden you would have is a massive outnumbering of Arabs to Jewish people if Israel was to knock down its borders and uh of course then it would destroy the idea of there being a exclusively like jewish state and it's like they're obviously not going to take that direction but it's something to think about right because it's like are we really a country in a society that's in service to humanity or are we really just in service to one group of people and there is a legitimate fear that if the state of Israel is overtaken by a group of people that have been totally oppressed and marginalized and treated as second-class citizens, if not infinitely worse, then uh, with them outnumbering now the dominant oppressor side, they could basically uh, take over the state and have a huge situation. But this is also kind of like looking at this is sort of the circumstances that people find themselves in when they choose apartheid and when they choose uh, to control and 
dominate a group of people. So there isn't really necessarily like a simple solution here, but I would, in my own analysis, feel that the only answer is for there to be some breaking down of the borders, for there to be, on some level, a sense of equality, for there to be a sense of forgiveness, for there to be a sense of peace and reconciliation, and a sense of each side taking ownership for wrongdoings and a collective attempt for people to realize, hey, we are one human family, and that's the only thing that's going to pull us out of this is recognizing that Arab, Jewish, white, black, Asian, Native American, whatever, Australian, Aboriginal, it doesn't matter who you are. We're part of the human family, and we have to work together, and we have to transcend these uh, fake belief systems, illusionary belief systems. They're real in some regard. And these blockades that we put up in our hearts and minds that are pushing the other away from us. And we have to stop uh, creating an other and recognize that we are one collective uh, family. And it's important that we find a way to live peacefully with one another. And from what my mom's friend was saying, this idea of a one-state solution of people learning to work together cooperatively... I honestly do not think there's any other possible way for there to truly be peace in that region. And to create such a context requires each individual to look at themselves and say, like, I will keep peace. I will be forgiving. I am a spiritual person. If this is a war between religions, then the spiritual practice of a religious person, of a spiritual person, is to be forgiving. And, like, that's the word that really keeps coming up over and over again. Like, people focus a lot about peace in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East. But really, like, forgiveness in the Middle East is what, for me, is coming up a lot. Because, yeah, there's been a lot of bad things that, you know, have happened between these two sides over the years. It's been just, like, wrongdoing after wrongdoing and reaction to wrongdoing, creating more wrongdoing. But ultimately, like, forgiveness is the only thing that will bring about peace. And it's the only thing that will allow peace to prevail is people understanding like, okay, yes, that did happen. But we, in order to move forward in a positive direction, need to let go of it and work together. Otherwise, we're going to obliterate one another. And uh, of what value is that to anybody? You know, what value is it to say like, okay, we're going to attack you and now you're going to flatten our entire uh, civilization? okay, that doesn't benefit anybody, and then create more animosity. So forgiveness has to be the meditation in order to break down the barriers and this idea of, like, there needs to be this country or that country, and we can't live together. You know, in, in Brooklyn, <laughs> where I lived for eight years, Jewish and Muslim people live together in total harmony. It works out great. There's even African people, and there's Chinese people, there's Native people, there's white people, there's European people, there's there's probably even some Antarctic penguins there. Who knows? I would not be surprised in Brooklyn, of all places. That's why when you drive over the bridge, it says Brooklyn like no other place in the world. So what comes to me is just like people need to learn to forgive and learn to live peacefully side by side. And these border divisions, they just need to go. But first they have to go in the hearts of individuals. We're in a moment. We're in the second degree of the age of Aquarius as stated by initiatic elders meaning that 
the old ways of human beings relating to each other through like identity politics and my race, my religion, my gender, my culture, my political party, my family, blah, 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 all these things that divide humanity into different segments and groups. If we're rigidly stuck to those things, we are going to get burned really bad because those things all are going away. It is the end. Those things are done. That is uh, old news. And that's what the new Bakhtun of the Mayans usher was ushering in in 2012, right? It wasn't the end of the world. It was the end of the cycle of the old world. And now comes in the new world. And that's what the Mayan tradition was trying to illuminate us towards, which is that everything that is no longer in service of these more humanistic and higher level vibrational reality and connection is going to be ablaze and in a lot of ways this is what i feel is happening with israel and palestine and specifically right um the energy of pluto and because i'm not a master of astrology i'm gonna read this brief thing about it uh as it is i think pretty like potent understanding of what's happening right now on many places on many levels in the world understanding the archetype of pluto pluto is a transformer its visit changes everything as the planet of wealth power secrets mystery and shadow journeys pluto teaches us that life is an unstoppable force it unfurls from the fertile decay of the compost heap its fungi fans from the rot of a tree its lotus flower blooms within a bed of mud. Pluto magic is all about rebirth. Whenever new growth emerges from a dark night of the soul, trust that the CEO of Underworld Journeys is involved. A.K.A. Pluto. Fortunately for us, this slow-moving planet gives us ample time to absorb the profundity of its lessons. When Pluto visits our natal chart, it demands stamina, courage, and ruthless honesty. If we commit to unearthing our potency, the barren of buried treasure will transform the lead of our lives into gold. When you start working with this planet, you will feel wildly in tune with your innermost self, but it requires that you listen to the subterranean whispers. It asks that you trust the voice deep inside. It urges you to open the doors in your psyche covered in caution tape. Whenever Pluto asks you to leave behind in Hades, know that it's clearing space for something even more fulfilling. So that right there is obviously like on a personal level, what's happening within our unconscious mind. Like, you know, it's the underworld, it's Hades. It's bringing us into the depth of our soul in a very, uh, at times scary way. But if we can embrace it, it becomes deeply, deeply powerful. So, Pluto hasn't journeyed through Aquarius since the late 1700s. Though Pluto's 2023 stint in Aquarius is only a three-month teaser of the change to come, we're about to board a once-in-several-centuries roller coaster ride. This is unexplored territory in our lifetime and many lifetimes before. So, get ready. Uh, what my teacher said about COVID was like, this is a training exercise for what is about to happen on earth. Uh, and the situation with Israel and Gaza and many other things happening in the world right now, like what's happening is the whole thing is about to go kaboom. When Pluto enters Aquarius, it brings its transformative themes into the realm of inform information, technology, data, science, and systems of power. Aquarius is a sign concerned with the collective. 
By the end of Pluto's time here in 2044, we can expect our social norms and ideologies to be radically transformed. Whether we're focused on the ongoing climate crisis, the rise of extreme political ideologies, or the epidemic of gun violence, Pluto and Aquarius demands our full cooperation in turning major issues around. I'm sure that Israel and Gaza would fit in perfectly there. The planet of power's recent travels through Capricorn, which is where it's been for quite a while, revealed how stuck we are within the cultures of supremacy, where the game is rigged to benefit the 1%. Pluto and Aquarius asks, well, what about the 99%? As we have learned through educational campaigns on social media, as well as through our ability to record and collectively refuse state violence, we have the tools to find each other, to mobilize, to organize. We just need a rallying cry urgent enough to cut through the noise of endless visual, virtual distractions. When Pluto last changed signs in 2008, the housing bubble burst only months later. Greed, deregulation of the stock market, and cheap credit led to a recession whose shockwaves reverberate to this day. Although the banks were bailed out, it was the working class that shouldn't that shouldered the burden of this financial crisis, and nothing really changed. Today, hedge funds continue to hoard wealth through inside training. Pluto loves to hide its gold, after all. Meanwhile, housing and grocery prices continue to soar, while so many struggle to cover their basic necessities. With the recent capsizing of Silicon Valley Bank, it appears that history is on the verge of repeating itself as Pluto again changes signs. If the powers that be refuse to evolve our financial systems, the planet of wealth may well force the issue. With the collective behind it this time, though this latest crisis contains so far within the tech industry, which Aquarius rules, only time will tell if this is the first domino in another recession. It should be an interesting time for cryptocurrency, I would think, as well. <laughs> of course, disruption in the tech industry isn't limited to its banks. The internet itself is on the verge of a massive transition. We're noticing this already with the AI renaissance, which is likely to open a Pandora's box of ethical questions. Quantum computing could prove to be another game-changer, as Pluto and Aquarius pierces the event horizon of our sense reality itself. We must decide where our ingenuity, <laughs> uh, creativity, and even the divine fit within an increasingly automated world. Will our tools and technology empower us, or will the algorithms make us their tools? With recent attempts to ban TikTok in North America, issues of power and control will transform our virtual connectivity in the decades to come. And this part I particularly like, Pluto's last descent through Aquarius, is to give you a sense of like what happened last time it was in Aquarius in the 1700s. The last time Pluto journeyed through Aquarius between 1777 and 1798, the world's balance of power massively shifted. These two decades saw the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution. The monarchy was toppled in France, showing that even the world's most powerful institutions crumble in the face of Pluto's wrecking ball. The Age of Enlightenment also reached a crescendo at this time. Aquarian ideals of reason, rationality, and humanity's power to steer its own destiny fueled this epoch and laid the groundwork for democratic institutions and human rights. During this era, the planet Uranus was discovered with the help of cutting-edge technology, the telescope, completely upending our view of the known solar system. The hot air balloon was also invented, which was the first time humans transcended earthly gravity and rose into the heavens. The fixed sign of Aquarius rules over all aerial happenings, so it's no coincidence that spy balloons, airborne contamination, and UFOs are suddenly making headlines. 
Yes, we're adding an alien invasion to our Pluto and Aquarius bingo card. <laughs> Additionally, Mary Wollenstonecraft published A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792, which argued that women should be treated as equal rational beings, especially regarding education. The struggle for basic human dignity continues into 2023, with more than 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced or passed in the USA in 2022 alone, as well as reproductive rights being systematically revoked. We can expect these issues to reach a flashpoint during Pluto's time in Aquarius. Seasons of collective upheaval are rarely comfortable, but they also remind us of the resilience and power of our communities. Wherever our institutions fail us, there's an opportunity to build something more fair, sturdier, and sustainable in its place. So gather your screen and invite your friends for a hacktivism party. We're in this together. <laughs> it's from a website called Chani, C-H-A-N-I. It's quite a good article. I like it a lot. So we're witnessing the crumbling and the dying <clears throat> and the last remnants holdouts of power. Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. Benjamin Netanyahu invading Gaza. It's just like it's the last push of these totalitarian dictatorship consciousness type people trying to control the universe and they're about to get uh, completely upended is my prediction here. So the flow of Pluto transitioning from Capricorn to Aquarius is it went into Aquarius on March 23rd, my birthday. What a wonderful coincidence, synchronicity. <laughs> and then it retrograded back into Capricorn on June 11th. And then on January 20th of next year, it will go back into Aquarius. And then it will retrograde back into Capricorn on September 1st, 2024. And then it will go full steam ahead November 19th, 2024 where it will remain until 2043 and uh yeah kind of interesting november 19 2024 that's my son's birthday so i don't know man I, that's like an interesting synchronicity it goes into aquarius on my birthday and kind of hobbles around and then on my son's birthday it's over it's the end the beginning of the end which is wonderful because it means the beginning of something new that's humanitarian that's higher consciousness that's more connected that's more just in alignment with everybody else these people that have felt that they can just run things for so long they can say goodbye so i wanted to uh share that article so i actually edited this podcast again for a third time i'm gonna leave in what i had kept previously about Pluto and Capricorn and a couple other things that might be a little redundant as you listen here, but I'm keeping it in because there's some other stuff in there that I wanted to remain in the podcast. So that's just a little bit breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, and enjoy listening to that. Uh, welcome backwards to the podcast I recorded a couple days ago, if that makes sense. If not, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the ride. Uh, Pluto being in Capricorn for quite some time and... You know, that's all about like structure, hierarchy, power, uh, traditional values and, you know, doing things the right way and so on. <laughs> By right way, I mean like the powerful way, if that makes sense to you. And Pluto being like this very intense destructive force. And now it is back and forth transitioning to Aquarius. And this is the 
energy, right, of like humanistic, technological, social change, like cosmic vision, like free thinking, independent thinking, revolutionary thinking in the medicine of Pluto, which is like destruction and chaos and transformation and change. And the last time Pluto was in Aquarius, you had both the French Revolution and the American Revolution <laughs> when it entered into it. And, you know, what I feel is happening because Pluto first went into Aquarius on my birthday this year on March 23rd, and then it retrograded and it's kind of been going back and forth a little bit. I think next year in the fall, if I had to guess, it's going to be permanently in Aquarius. But this situation feels like the last remnant of Pluto in Capricorn, of like the traditional power structure and authority, which is totally outdated, not in service towards the people, not in service towards humanistic values, but in service of like traditional hierarchy and boundaries and borders is trying to assert itself over something that is completely out of context anymore for the world that we live in. It's like, this totally, this from like the 1800s. Like, this would have been fine in the 1800s if you did this. I don't mean from like my own heart and humanistic ethical values, but I just mean in terms of like the social normative behavior. Like, this kind of violence would be something that would be uh, accepted, you could say, from the global culture, you know, from, from most people. Um, which is obviously really disturbing, but nonetheless, it's kind of a truth, right? That colonialism was something that was acceptable in the 1800s and so on. But it's totally out of date now, and it's not going to last. And they say that Pluto and Aquarius is very, very bad for uh, Plutarchs, people who are, you know, power-hungry, greedy people that want to control, manipulate others, you know, the Putins of the world and Donald Trumps and the... Uh, Kim Jong-il, Benjamin Netanyahu, all these people that are using violence and force and aggression and to assert their boundaries and their borders and their uh, delusional version of what reality is and feel that in order to protect that delusional version of reality, they need to subjugate violence onto others. So just some context for things, because when you look at it, I think from like this astrological and mystical uh, cyclical changing way, cyclical in the sense of like these these different ages coming to be different Bakhtuns of the Mayans say in different uh, astrological ages. And we're seeing, right, this is the, the last, one of the last holdouts of like the old way in a very, um, it's getting really intense because it's just like with, um, you know, the, <laughs> when you have a, um, when you have a like acne right it's like all the stuff comes up to the surface right when it's about to get out all the pus and everything and it becomes this really afflicted intense visually disturbing thing and then it pops right and it breaks and then okay all the stuff is released and then the cleaning process goes through my teacher has just been talking about how this is like a very intense moment of cleaning and healing for the human species and it can look really nasty and gnarly because it is but also because it's like everything's being brought to the surface all the stuff that in a lot of ways it's been happening right I, the the situation with israel and palestine is nothing new it's been happening for decades it's just that it's reaching this like crescendo of violence and intensity uh because it needs to come to a closure it's no longer in alignment with the new age that's coming 
So what we can take away from Salgado in this situation is that, like, if we align ourselves with the old age, expect violence and chaos in your life. Like, that's that's where you are orienting yourself. But if you're opening yourself up to a more progressive, humanitarian, egalitarian, conscious, awakened, spiritually connected place where we're not creating division and boundaries, uh, then we can expect a lot more light and harmony to come into our lives. And they say, right, with... uh, with chaos comes great opportunity. You know, anytime there is a mistake or a failure, that is a hidden opportunity in disguise. So the more that we can take a look at what is happening in the world and see the quote-unquote darkness and violence as an opportunity in disguise to bring in light and compassion and healing and balance and forgiveness, then we can put ourselves on top of a very very powerful wave that uh, is coming with this new age and this new cycle as put forth by the Mayans Uh, and you know it's funny with the Mayans right like the Christians say like oh the earth's been here for only 5,000 years and the Mayans are like really you know we've been counting for like 25,000 years that's interesting perspective that you have (laughs) so when you look at the cultures that have been systematically in tune with the cycles of life and what's been occurring with the cosmos and the stars measuring and observing and living in accordance with nature they're telling us that there's a very big wave coming and we have two positions to put ourselves on right of course there's probably a million different places in between those two positions but more or less the one is we can either get crushed by that wave by clinging to the old mannerisms and behaviors and programs of the past and society of the past the old system or we can open our minds to the new cosmic forces that are coming into play and learn to embrace these humanistic spiritual values and find ourselves uplifted and surf that wave into a very beautiful and incredibly empowering and mesmerizing reality so there's always a simple choice right they always say there's a choice between love and fear and and that that's what so much of this boils down to like there's complexities within the politics of israel and palestine that are quite intense and there's reasons to be upset about things and you're like yeah you know those people were there and then you just came in and kicked them all off the land and and then put them into open-air prisons and you know you're wondering why they're violent it's like okay but and at the same time too like you know they who has a right to go and just kill a bunch of people because you're upset like what kind of a strategy is that and we can make all kinds of excuses for why one side might behave that way but ultimately like Mahatma Gandhi overthrew the most powerful empire the world ever saw through nonviolence. Uh, you know Martin Luther King civil rights movement nonviolence, and Malcolm X uh, while he did say by any means necessary, amongst many other controversial statements, he went to um, Mecca, and when he was in Mecca, uh, in Saudi Arabia, he saw men, because only men were allowed in that area, uh, of all different ethnicities and races, but all Muslim, playing, praying together, and he saw men who were white and black 
not just praying together, but also interacting together, being kind and friends with one another, and realize like that those people didn't even have the racial programming that uh, white and black men had in the United States. And that this was a totally learned and conditioned thing. As Martin Luther King said, you know, no one is born into the world hating another race or anything like that. It's something that's completely programmed and learned by a um, disturbed and traumatized culture. And when Malcolm X returned from Mecca, he was a totally changed person and began to see the futility of violence as a way of initiating real change and transformation uh, in the United States with race relations and saw that peaceful humanitarian values were the way. I actually have a quote from Malcolm X in my high school yearbook. Um, <laughs> he says uh, he's at a um, traffic stop. This is in his autobiography. And he ro- white guy rolls down the window and goes, Hey, Malcolm X, would you shake hands with a white man? And Malcolm X just looks over and like looks him in the eye and says, I would shake hands with a human being. Are you one? And I always really love that quote, super powerful quote, this idea of like, can we transcend what we look like? Can we transcend your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, your social status, whatever it is? And, and can you see that you are a human being and start to treat other people like you, like they are human beings? And how so many of these complexities within politics and social arrangements can just be immediately transcended and left behind instantly when we just start to see, hey, we're human beings part of a giant human family um if your loved one (laughs) committed a violent act against you the answer wouldn't be to commit a violent act against them like that's insane like why would you do that it's your loved one you would you would do something to help heal them realizing that they're sick and there would be some kind of a compassionate response and so just promotion of humanitarian values and and the importance of seeing that and like there's a really beautiful video on youtube of ram das after taking lsd for the first time or whatever time it was i don't know he looks pretty fresh in the in the interview he's still clean shaven he hasn't become ram das yet and he's saying like that when you take lsd and you have this experience suddenly it's like all the things that were you identify with your cultural identity, your age, your status, social status, your wealth, um, your gender, whatever it is, they just would fall off like clothing. And you start to see like your humanness come through and even a deeper aspect of your just pure consciousness come through. And he says too, like that they say, all wars are civil wars because all men are brothers. And this is, I think very important thing to understand right like that peaceful means can resolve situations and Mahatma Gandhi has proved that so even if what the Israeli government has done to the Palestinian people is wrong the Palestinian response is also wrong like there's ways to to counteract violence and injustice peacefully and there are there's plenty of examples of it there's no excuse for just going out and just arbitrarily murdering people specifically peace activists so it's a powerful position to take when we say we're going to go the route of forgiveness and peace um and i think that's where a lot of people get confused is that they think that their agency and their empowerment is to be aggressive and to be 
resistant and violent. Uh, and in fact, if you just look at what arises out of that, it's just more violence and more aggression and more harm and more innocent people dying. And so it requires each one of us to see within our own personal life, how can we choose to use peaceful means to resolve conflict? And of course, it's very tricky because we have a very intense animalistic nature that says, this is mine and I have to protect this and this is who I am and so on. But the evolution, vibrationally speaking, of our consciousness is no longer in alignment with that. And so if we align ourselves with something that is outdated, we are going to find ourselves in a very messy situation. So the recommendation is for us to do the inner work to prevent ourselves from finding ourselves in those kind of circumstances. And to understand uh, that all of this is about cycles. Cycles of time, cycles of violence, cycles of behavior. One thing that you do perpetuates another thing, sets an example, and sets a tone for another thing. So what's coming to me is just a really strong meditation about like, okay, where am I cycling around? It's kind of funny too because like the card of the day from the Osho Tarot deck is this card that's always been a little confusing to me and I feel like it's finally just making sense. It's called the Past Lives card and in it's like an hourglass with two lizards on either side and then the hourglass are like all these different uh, famous depictions of people or not famous but they're they're wearing like costumes that you'd recognize from like the renaissance or egypt or africa or native american like they have these very like you know um strongly depicted costumes and the card reads the hands of existence form the shape of the female genitals the opening of the cosmic mother revealed within are many images faces from other times while it might be entertaining to fantasize about famous past lives, it is just a distraction. The real point is to see and understand the karmic patterns of our lives and their roots in an endless, repetitive cycle that traps us in unconscious behavior. The two rainbow lizards on either side represent knowing and not knowing. They are the guardians of the unconscious, making sure that we are prepared for a vision that might otherwise be shattering. A glimpse into the eternity of our existence is a gift. And understanding the function of karma in our lives is not something that can be grasped at will. This is a wake-up call. The events in your life are trying to show you a pattern as ancient as the journey of your own soul. The child can become conscious only if his past life, only if in his past life he has meditated enough, has created enough meditative energy to fight with the darkness that death brings. One is simply lost in an oblivion and then suddenly finds a new womb and forgets completely about the old body. There is a discontinuity. This darkness, this unconsciousness creates the discontinuity. The East has been working hard to penetrate these barriers and 10,000 years work has not been in vain. Everybody can penetrate the past life or many past lives, but for that you have to go deeper into your meditation. For two reasons. Unless you go deeper, you cannot find the door to another life. Secondly, you have to be deeper in meditation because if you find the door of another life, a flood of events will come into the mind. It is hard enough even to carry one life. So, <laughs> it's funny that this is the card, right? Cycles. Uh, and, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, they say that everyone you meet has been your mother. Everyone. An infinite life. 
infinite manifestations. You've been doing this so many times. How many times? It's as if a bird was flying over Mount Everest with a napkin and it gently scrapes one grain of sand off the top of Mount Everest with that napkin. And it comes by every 1,000 years. The amount of time it would take to scrape down the mountain to nothing, that is how long you have been reincarnating, is what they say. <laughs> which is to say forever, which is really, really long. <laughs> and if you start to realize that, everyone's not only your family, but it's like they're your mother. And so now you're going to go bomb all of them and shoot all of them? Like, what kind of insanity is that? You have clearly lost your way into a very confused, ignorant perspective. And as they're saying, this is a wake-up call. That's what all of these situations are. The pus coming to the top of your face is to say, hey man, you have not cleaned your face in a while. You need to take a shower. That's what the universe is trying to tell humanity right now with the situation. It's like, it's a very small situation in a lot of ways, what's happening. You know, uh, for instance, World War II, I think 50 million people died in World War II. Like an entire generation was wiped out. Israel and Gaza at the moment, you got like 11,000 people have died. On the scale of human catastrophe in comparison to other things, it's not a large number. Uh, what? And I'm not trying to undermine it. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. From it, One person, right, is a tragedy, right? The, the, and, and everyone is connected to someone. But what we're getting at here is just the sense that, like, this situation is creating so much attention in the global consciousness because it's it's just trying to wake us up to something it's trying to illuminate something that's completely out of balance in human consciousness and as a subsequent our culture right because how many people are dying a year from smoking Four hundred thousand in the united states like okay did you know that <laughs> like sixty thousand people die a year in india from snake bites no one it's not like a big deal though it's just like that's part of life it's what happens just like human violence is a part of life but there's 12,000 people a year that die from gun violence in the United States and that's still something that is not even really registering in human consciousness as a big deal yet it is for some groups but for a lot of people it's not but this situation with Israel and Gaza has become this massive thing and is because it's trying to illuminate something it's trying to bring something larger than itself into human conscious awareness that is revelatory about the way that we have been living and way we've been treating one another and of course it also reflects back into our personal lives how are we treating the people who we live with how are we treating ourselves are we forgiving ourselves are we violent towards ourselves are we destructive towards ourselves are we saying i did this so i have to punish myself and then we go out and we inflict punishment upon ourselves and other people. So this is a wake-up call. The events in your life are trying to show you a pattern as ancient as the journey of your own soul. Can you realize that we are one family and that you are attacking your mother? Okay, if you truly understood that teaching, if you were really a spiritual person, this is this holy war and a spiritual war, if you're really a spiritual and holy person, why are you so deeply ingrained in violence and devastation and destruction towards others? Clearly, you are not a spiritual person if you are not practicing peace and forgiveness. Peace is not a destination that you arrive at by murdering people. It's the way. Peace is the way. Mahatma Gandhi. 
he said peace is the way that is done he would rather fast to death start start from self to death through fasting than watch violence ensure as a method to obtaining power and he wound up ending uh violent conflict between hindus and muslims in india super amazing bhagavad gita inspired approach to activism right be the change you wish to see in the world so understanding this idea about you know we wind up in situations based off of our karmic patterns of previous lives but not trying to necessarily connect to who we were in a past life it's not important what's important is looking at the cycles that were caught in this life at this moment at this time in the present moment this is where it's important this is where the work is to be done this is where true transformation and change can be initiated and activated and i like this part where in the card it says like the two rainbow lizards on either side represent knowing and not knowing they are the guardians of the unconscious making sure that we are prepared for a vision that might otherwise be shattering so a glimpse into the eternity of our existence is a gift and i like this because the a vision that might otherwise be shattering our minds as aldous huxley liked to said keep the mind at large at bay you know it's a filtration device our mind is like a filter it's filtering out the infinity of consciousness in the cosmos as william blake said if the doors of perception were cleansed then the life would appear as it truly is which is infinite uh right and once again that's uh that was jim morrison's inspiration for the name of the band the doors which he named after his own experiences with mescaline and peyote and reading all this huxley's adores of perception and this understanding that this filtration device that we have is a dangerous thing and the filtration device is the problem not other people when the filtration device becomes clogged and stuffy with belief systems and values and dichotomies of us and them and other people are guilty and other people did the wrong thing and i'm in a self-righteous position then we know that there's something wrong with the filtration device and we need to get an oil change <laughs> we need to get some draino we need to clean it out we need to go to the indigenous people and ask them to heal us because there's something that is very sick that has gone on inside for too long and our culture is a deep reflection of that so when we clean ourselves of this filtration device and we start to come in contact with all of the clogged material it's quite terrifying it's quite horrifying it's like that scene where krishna sorry when arjuna asked krishna to reveal himself and he realizes that he is the totality of life including the monstrosity and all those aspects of it and how does one come to come to terms with that understanding that like what's happening on the outside is happening on the inside and that we're not limited to just you and me and myself and that we are the entirety of life and the cosmos so the two rainbow lizards providing us as a guardian 
as we traverse these terrifying realms of the unconscious and step into places of the mind where the vision could be otherwise shattering. So the importance of having guides, the importance of having elders, the importance of having teachers, the importance of having teachings of people who walk the path, who understand what is lays beneath where these dichotomies and things come together as Terrence McKenna said we've you know we've gone to the farthest um, trench of the ocean we've gone to outer space we've gone to the moon we've gone to the deepest jungle uh, yet we have not gone completely inside and is there where we sense that all the contradictions may meet together so just understanding that what we're caught in what's really happening and what we're caught in and what i feel the the teaching from salgado from the middle east and reflections on things is look at yourself focus on yourself turn your camera towards yourself because have you not noticed that while you are trying to save the world you have been getting really sick <laughs> <laughs> that was what happened to Salgado. You're trying to shine a light on the negativity of the world and the devastation, and instead you're making yourself really, really sick, and then you're neglecting what's happening at home. And you need to take care of what's happening at home. You need to be uh, a steward of the earth. You need to be back in connection with nature. And so... I was having a funny time with this podcast when I tried to record it the other day because I, I was trying to get into like talking about all these uh, political analyses about situations in the Middle East because I grew up in a very political household. My mom's a political scientist and stuff and I studied a lot of it and I've traveled over the Middle East a number of times and I was just like listening to myself. I was like, none of this is really at all what I want this podcast to be about. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not getting it. This is not it. Cause the, the focus is all on the wrong thing. And I realized, no, this whole podcast needs to be about people changing their focus to looking within towards their own self and not worrying about what's happening out there. Be aware of things. Don't put your head in the sand. Be like, you know, conscious of like what's happening and also why it's happening. But don't find yourself completely submerged by it otherwise you'll find yourself miserable you'll find yourself sick and then of what good are you in shining a light on anything no we need to shift our focus back inwards we need to turn inwards and you know that's what's happening right i haven't done a podcast since the summer and we're now in the fall this is what the equinox is all about the days get shorter the night gets longer the darkness is here but the darkness isn't bad. The darkness is an invitation for us to go inwards and asking us to explore and enter into the unconscious. And yeah, there's a time and a place for like the solar masculine energy to be doing, doing, doing. But the winter is asking us to go inwards and to connect to the light inside of us, right? This is the, the process the sun is going through as it goes from the equinox into the summer uh, the winter solstice as the new light needs to come forth and so our job of this time period of the fall is to not fear death and not 
look at death as a curse. As Ram Das said, death is perfectly safe. <laughs> it's perfectly safe. So, you know, when, when we're able to somehow transcend the illusion that there's anything wrong with dying and meditate on our own mortality, so many different things that are happening in life could take on a new slant. If you're someone that fears death and thinks of it as evil, then being a fundamentalist, a religious fundamentalist, makes a lot of sense, I think. It's a great perspective to take if you believe death is evil. But if you are connected to a transcendental reality of the eternal present moment, where death is something that is to be embraced wholly as a wonderful, rebirthing, transformative uh, metamorphosis, then we can look at what's happening in life as totally different and from a totally different lens. Not from a lens of not with compassion and caring and taking action, compassionate action, but just a perspective of understanding, of putting ourselves underneath from with a intention of humility, humbling perspective under death. Like there's a teaching in death. There's a renewal process. And so that's what the energy of the fall is, right? In the equinox, it's understanding of like what the life that came forth over the past year is going. It's going and it's gone. But that's not the end of it. And it's good that it's going because we need to clear space for something else to come through. Within and without, right? Like this is what we need to welcome in is we need to shift our focus. Yeah, there's chaos and destruction all around us, but you know, it's a wake up call to your circumstances, which have been eternal, that it's always been freaking chaos and confusion and madness all around. As I started the podcast saying like, there's never been a boring time. I don't like only a boring mind. Maybe pay attention. Like things have always been pretty crazy. So understanding that like, this is a endless cycle that we've been in for like lifetimes. And if we want to get out, we need to shift our cameras, focus away from the tragedy of the world and turn it inwards and investigate like what is happening inside of us. Why do I feel this way? Why have I been behaving this way? What is it that I need to clean? What has been clogged up in my filter that needs to be released to open the way for this new humanitarian consciousness that's coming through? And so this is a really perfect time to enter into that meditation and that yoga. Yoga, right, being union, which is not about a posture that you can photograph and put on Instagram. It is a mindset connected to a series of practices to help bring about a revelation just about who you already are and always have been. And understanding this is a great moment to just look within and to let go of so much of like the hustle bustle and all the chaos like oh my god there's a fire over here oh my god there's a fire over there oh my god this is burning hey have you not noticed that this whole place has been built on a fire it's not that there's a fire there over here the whole thing is just a giant fire pit we're all standing on top of a fire pit everything is burning <laughs> in the dhammapada the, the buddha says uh the world is burning and are you laughing <laughs> i suppose i am but i'm not laughing at that just more the the intense delivery of the statement there's a really um epic uh recording of the dhammapada that our community plays a lot and it's read in this like really like hard knock kind of way the deadpan very 
matter of fact it's read just like that and are you laughing super intense um i always find myself laughing so maybe i'm just not getting it but the the point being like yeah there's chaos man there's death everything is being wiped out destroyed just when things come together they fall apart but you know what it's like it's okay it's okay that's that's kind of like the whole cosmic joke of everything that whatever happens somehow it's all okay and it's what needs to happen and that's not to say that we shouldn't from a human perspective be outraged by things that happen and that we shouldn't like try to make an effort to strive for like a more harmonious and peaceful and kind and compassionate world but it's also just to take understanding that you know when krishna turned into shiva destroyer of worlds and showed us like holy god um that everything is like part of the whole cosmic mess that we have to embrace that on some level and that is a vision that unless we have proper guidance could be shattering so understanding uh when we're seeking a vision to have proper guidance whatever that looks like for you so takeaways here where are you pointing your camera lens yes there's chaos out there but have you become attuned to the amount of chaos that's inside of you because it's been reaching a boiling point as well and it's important to do diligence and to clear all that out so taking the proper time and space during the fall equinox to heal yourself so that when the light comes back in the winter the days start to get longer and reach the crescendo in the summertime there's something potent and powerful and activated that we have to offer the world so it's a good time to meditate on like yeah i see what's happening but what can where's my agency where where can i reforest the earth where am i being called to remedy the situation from a deeper place right looking for the calling from a deeper place not just from an egoic place all right good stuff to meditate about wish everyone a lot of peace remembering that the best and most impactful thing we can do is keep our inner space peaceful keep our inner space clean and radiate that outwards creatively expressively joyfully through the world in spite of whatever may be happening celebrating life as it is remembering that life is perfect you can't fix it if you try to fix it you will break it peace Thank you.